Hi, my name is Saul and this is the Story of London, a weekly podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city, sometimes in extraordinary detail. I go into detail because I like to tell stories, true stories, the events of history that we can prove happened. We are currently hovering around the year 1170. King Henry II is ruling England. Thomas Becket has just been murdered, and the events of London are unfolding. Only, here's the thing, there isn't that much that happens in London over the next few years. Don't get me wrong, by the end of the decade events start picking up, but here and now, well, events are quite quiet, mundane. People are just busy getting on with their own lives, I suppose. So, we should just speed up a bit, right? Well, as time passes... Regular listeners know that this podcast is not immune to current events. And at the time of recording, we've just witnessed the funeral of Shane McGowan, the lead singer of The Pogues, that anarchic Irish punk band whose biggest claim to fame is the ballad The Fairy Tale of New York. But for me, Shane was never a great Irish singer because The Pogues were never an Irish band. They were a London Irish band. That's what made me a fan of theirs to begin with. Shane was the voice of the Irish diaspora, the vast numbers of those Irish who were born and raised in England and beyond. The Pogues were born on the streets of South London, and this is where they found their voice. The Pogues were part of a community I'm part of, the London Irish. And as I started thinking about Shane and his band, I started thinking about the Irish diaspora of London. It was to be a huge part of the story of the city going forward. Much of modern London was built by them, and they've been the subject of sometimes shocking violence over the centuries to come. Indeed, you cannot tell the story of London without telling the story of the vast London-Irish community that has emerged within it. But that got me thinking. Where did it start? Where did the Irish in London really begin? Well, to understand that, you need to examine where the Irish and the English began to become inextricably linked. When did the English start being all up in Irish business? And that's a good question to ask, because it is right now in the story of London, around the year 1170, and just after the death of Thomas Becket, that Henry II launched the first invasion of Ireland by an English king. So if we are going to examine the roots of the London Irish community, this vast Irish diaspora who helped shape the city to come, we need, I honestly believe, to look at the events that started the ball rolling. How did England first become involved in Ireland? So what follows is a chapter that does stray away from London just for a while, But I think it helps illustrate, one, the sheer diversity of the world we're talking about. Secondly, the sheer complexity of the time period we're talking about. And thirdly, yeah, explains how the English ended up in Ireland and, by equal measure, how the Irish ended up in London. Welcome, then, to Chapter 72 of the Story of London. The Last Vikings and the origins of the London Irish. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Modern history is filled with the four home nations, the four distinct polities that grew up on the British Islands. And when we look at the history of those nations, we judge them by these boundaries. We tell Scottish history or Irish history because these nations exist now and they are our focus. But you know what? As I think I've shown in the discussions in previous episodes, these countries, once upon a time did not exist. 
Mercians in the 7th century never saw themselves as Englishmen who just happened to be temporarily Mercian. They were Mercian, and Mercia was a country with hundreds of years of history. So when we use our labels to look back at the past, we have to take on board that you go back far enough, and our labels no longer work. There was a time before each and every nation, when it was Alba and not Scotland, when Wales was many kingdoms, and there was even a time before the Irish defined themselves as Irish. And oddly enough, again, as we've discussed in previous chapters, these national identities, the entire discussions of where people in these regions started to say, we are Scottish or we are English and so forth, was mostly done in response to a rival ethnicity via the process of schismogenesis. Every one of the four home nations began forming their identity by defining themselves as we are not them. But the them was not the English. Because the way to fully understand and appreciate the history of the British Isles is to recognise that once upon a time, alongside England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, there was a fifth nation, a separate people, a separate culture, the children of the Vikings. Only they were not really Vikings. They were called different names in the past. In England, we tended to call them the Danes and their region, the Danel. But the phrase I've used to describe them, I've used several times over the series. They were the Norse diaspora. They were a separate polity to the English, the Irish, the Welsh and the Scottish with their own culture and language and were even separate and distinct from the Norwegian and Danish cultures they originated from. They changed the nations who surrounded them profoundly, and in the process of changing, helped create those nations. And the fifth nation was to play a significant and crucial role in dragging England into Irish affairs. Now, that's a big claim. But anyone who's listened to the story of London know we have covered this, starting all the way back in chapter 8 and carrying on till about chapter 50 or so. The Vikings, and especially the North Diaspora of the Irish Sea, have always sort of been around. What surprises many is that the Vikings here now in 1170 are not entirely gone. In fact, as the Vikings did indeed die out on the North Sea and across the rest of Scandinavia, on the Irish Sea, they were thriving. Why? Well, after the Normans invaded England, there was a rebirth in the fortunes of the North of the Irish Sea, William the Conqueror dismissed the ship's feud, and this gave the Norse diaspora free reign on the Irish Sea. It also helped that even before William the Conqueror turned up with the Normans, England was an inherently unstable nation. From the rule of Edgar the Peaceful, no king of England had ever inherited the throne peacefully or in proper line of succession. All the kings of England that followed until Henry II, and one could include Henry II technically, usurped the throne. There was no continuity between the regimes, no coherent foreign policy between the regimes. And as such, considering that England was the most cohesive politically of all the nations, if England had no cohesive foreign policy or continuity between the regimes, you can bet your bottom dollar that applied to the other nations as well. Members of the Norse Gael diaspora fought in the Crusades. They appeared in the background of great ceremonial moments across Europe. Here was a fifth polity, a separate culture, living on as the medieval age was starting. Yet I must say it is vital to understand one crucial thing. The diaspora was a fluid and dynamic world of many states. It's easy for us to look at a map and use titles such as England and Ireland and Scotland and assume these were geopolitical constants upon the Irish Sea. They were not. Rather see that the only geopolitical constant was the Irish Sea itself. Around the 12th century, this stretch of water linked a bewildering variety of kingdoms, regions, tribes and ethnicities together, all of whom were seeking to create stable nations and all of whom who had borders that waxed and waned with the passings of the years. Once again, to emphasise the point, we use titles like Ireland, England and Scotland to help us navigate this time period. At the time we're talking about, People used other geopolitical titles. Leinster, 
Munster, Kintyre, Argyle, Tyrone, Galloway, Arrain, Connacht, Man, Dublin, Sky, Unriach and Esther, Gwynedd, Alba, Pembroke, and more. And these nations were populated by Cambro Normans, Saxons, Scots, Irish, Norse Gael, Welsh, Norwegians, Danes, Anglo Normans, and others as these tribes mingled and fought along this waterway and, and intermarried and had kids along this waterway. Above all, the diaspora of the Irish Sea had become something else. There is a term used in paleontology when we study the great mass extinctions of the past, like when the dinosaurs were wiped out, and it looks like all of life is about to become extinct. A term was coined to describe those places where life survived, where the extinction never hit, and from which life then spread out across the world. The term is refugia, and as such, in the 12th century, the Irish Sea could accurately be described as a refugia for the Vikings. As Denmark and Norway had become Christian and ended the old ways of raiding and, and Vikinger attacks, and their colonies like Iceland had become places where Viking ancestors became nothing more than subject matter for increasingly fanciful tales fabricated by skeldic poets, here upon the Irish Sea, these ways remained. While elsewhere in Europe, Viking dragon ships were becoming a thing of memory. Those sleek ships still sailed the dark waters of the Irish Sea. The skills and tactics of their ancestors were still active and still used by the modern residents. The Vikings, in their own way, were still alive off the coasts of England and Ireland, Wales and Scotland. When Henry II was King of England, and actually did last beyond his lifetime, it was an incredible region where the only true power was control of the sea. Then, as now, maritime power was indicative of true geopolitical power. And this had been the situation for a century or more. These micronations waged constant sea-based warfare upon one another. And the closest superpower was the distant kings of Norway, who could supply the only external navy able to match their smorgasbord of competing fleets. England, Scotland, please. Neither of these nations at the time had any fleet. Since the Normans had destroyed the Saxon shipfjord, there'd be no way anyone could even touch the Norse diaspora of the Irish Sea. To the mighty Normans and now the first Plantagenet king of England, the Irish Sea might as well have been lava. And that is who was to be intimately involved in getting the English involved in Ireland. Without certain members of the North Gales, without this diaspora, the two nations would never have met as they did. It's down to them. And thus, now you know this, we can start looking at exactly what happened. Please note, as I've said before in previous episodes, I'm not very good at Latin, or Old English, or Gaelic or Scots Gael, or any language really, so I'll be anglicising many of the names within the story I'm about to tell you, not out of any demand for using English, just down to the fact that uh, my pronunciation of many of these names would be so bad, it's going to distract people. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, who do we blame? That's how we like to think in the modern era, isn't it? We have a compulsive need to blame people for things. I suppose because we do not believe in divine agency anymore, but it makes sense for us. So who is to blame for the English invading Ireland? Well, the first person to blame would be Henry II. After all, he invaded, right? So we ask ourselves, why? Why did he drag a huge army across the Irish Sea and into Ireland? At this point, the standard answer is to say, well, he was an English king, and that's what English kings do, I find. Only there is a massive issue with that answer. One, he was not English at all and would have taken the title as an insult. He was king over the English, sure, but that was his by right of conquest and treaty. The nation was his property. Its people were his obedient subjects. We'd just seen how much of a meltdown Henry II had had when one man from this nation had dared to defy him. So talking this up 
as Henry was acting in a way later English kings acted towards Ireland is patently false and untrue. So, brings us back to the question, why did he invade Ireland? Well, the first thing we have to say is about Henry as a king is he liked to gain territory. I mean, look at what we'd seen. Nate about 16 or so, he was the landless son of a noble. Within a few years, he was Count of Anjou and then Duke of Normandy, and then via his marriage, effective Duke of Aquitaine and controlled all of the south and west of France, and then he becomes king over England. And then we're going to see him use force of arms to expand his territory into four places in his lifetime, Brittany, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. So you can say in many ways, expanding his territory was something Henry II liked to do. So is that why he did it? Um, our biggest problem was that writers at the time were actually unsure why he intervened in Ireland. And by themselves, they knew almost nothing about Ireland itself. One contemporary chronicler called Gervais of Canterbury offered an explanation. Henry, he said, was invited by both the Irish and the original English invaders. Oh, and that's the thing, for those who don't know, there's actually two invasions, but I'll, I'll get to that. Gervais of Canterbury felt strongly that the Irish, quote, finding it impossible to prevail over soldiers who, although fewer in number than themselves, were braver and more skillful, sent envoys to the king of the English, begging him to come to Ireland, and by taking over the lordship of the country, preserve them from the ruthlessness of Earl Richard, unquote. Meanwhile, at the same time, this Earl Richard, who led this invasion, was so fearful that because the king didn't like him, apparently he also sent messages to Henry II saying he would submit to Henry if the king would allow him to keep what he'd taken and hold it as his loyal vassal. So the first thing we have to get was by 1170 or so, there was an ongoing political crisis taking place in Ireland caused by the invasion of a small bunch of people from England and both sides were, according to Gervais of Canterbury, asking the king to come over. And Henry was, as Gervais added, very susceptible to invitations to go abroad and solve some foreign crisis for a few months as he was facing interdiction over the murder of the Archbishop of Canterbury and figured it would be the best to get out of town and let everything cool down for a while. Against this argument are two counter-arguments. The first that says the Irish never invited King Henry II to come be lord over them. And that, my friends, is true, but only partly. No Irish king would ever invite the king of a foreign neighbouring country to come lord over them. But it's not to say some in Ireland didn't invite the king over. But I'll get to that. But the more established modern historical opinion towards the invasion was established by a historian called G.H. Orpen, who saw Henry's expedition in 1171 as the culmination of a long-cherished ambition. Quote, he had long cast hungry eyes towards Ireland. Shortly after coming to the English throne, he had proposed an expedition and gone so far as to obtain sanction of the invasion from Pope Adrian IV. But he had other preoccupations, and the ambition was postponed." Unquote. See, to open and to many others, Henry had wanted to invade Ireland for years, decades even, and the crisis of 1171 finally gave him the excuse. The problem with this explanation is, as nice and simple as it is, it misses some big, glaring and obvious problems. Huge problems at the time that make this impossible to be exactly true. But we'll come back to that. So what was this crisis in Ireland that had Henry supposedly getting invitations from all sides to come over and solve? <sighs> okay, when I originally wrote the script to this episode, I gave a full explanation to that question and ended up with a 45-minute long narrative just on that alone. So I said to myself, maybe I should summarise this part? So if there's any Irish historians listening and you're going, I think you're simplifying this, yes, yes I am. I'm simplifying this brutally. Basically, go back a bit of time. Alan was involved in a big political struggle for their own future, all wrapped up in a seemingly endless array of tribal conflicts. The fighting between these two sides in this struggle was very bitter, a bitterness wholly foreign to the Irish tradition. But it can best be explained as a struggle between two types of Irishmen, the modernizers 
and the traditionalists, and they are very overtly simplistic titles. The kings of Munster and Leinster, those nations on the east of Ireland, and therefore most in touch with the rest of Europe, were where you tended to find the modernizers who wanted Ireland to be in touch with the currents and discussions and the, 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 the religious themes of the rest of Europe. While the kings of Connacht, which is out towards the west of Ireland and furthest away from Europe, tended to lead the forces of reaction against this. That's a bit too simplistic, but it will do. And Irish annals and records at the time were mostly written by monks who tended to be more conservative elements of Irish society. And this is doubtless why the annals are so prejudiced against the kings who were modernizers. And for that, we've got to include men such as Merkitak MacLachlan of Munster and Dermot MacMurrah of Leinster. These two kings, while very powerful, were also trying to change things, and the annals were written by those opposed to them. With the collapse of Merkitek's power in 1161, this left his principal ally, King Dermot, militarily as well as politically vulnerable. And eventually, the King of Connacht drove him out of Dublin, his main power base, and then, with an alliance of fellow more reactionary traditionalist Irish leaders, drove him out of Ireland. Dermot's response was to seek help from Henry II. Now, there were several precedents for this kind of behaviour upon the Irish Sea. I mean, one of the best examples was in Scotland. In Scotland, too, at the beginning of the century, there had been a struggle between modernisers and traditionalists. It had expressed itself in a struggle for the succession to King Malcolm Canmore between the sons of Malcolm and their uncle Donald Bain. The conservatives under Donald Bain had briefly triumphed, but the sons of Malcolm had returned to exile to recover the throne, sustained and strengthened with help from the Normans of England and their uncle Edgar Aetheling. The second precedent was actually provided by somebody called King Murkatak of Ireland. He'd allied himself with the Normans in Wales by marrying his daughter to a man called Arnulf of Montgomery, the Lord of Pembroke. Unfortunately, King Murkatak's northern friends became involved in a conspiracy against King Henry I, and Arnulf of Pembroke ended up fleeing across the Irish Sea for a while and was able to be safe in Ireland because King Henry couldn't get there. Indeed, only a few years earlier, another local potentate, the king of the Norse-Gale kingdom of the Isle of Man, was deposed by his cousins and then later by his brother-in-law. In the first case, he sought aid from Norway to help him reclaim his kingdom. But in the second case, well, it sought aid from Henry II. But Henry couldn't help him, and neither could the king of Scotland, so he eventually ended up going to Norway to get restored to power again. King Dermot had asked help from King Henry II. But King Henry could offer him none. Even if he wanted to, he could offer no help at all. But he did allow the exile solicit help from his subjects. So Dermot set himself up in Bristol to find supporters, and found none, until he tried the wildest part of King Henry II's massive kingdom, Pembroke. Pembroke was not like anywhere else in the entire Angevin Empire, let alone England, let alone Wales. It was the furthest outcrop of lands loyal to Henry II in South Wales. It had been established by Normans who had expanded deep into Welsh territory, but very deep into Welsh territory. And here they had... Well, the Normans had changed. You see, they were no longer really Normans anymore. They were Cambro-Normans, lords of all who had married into Welsh family. Only, and here is where things get really interesting, the families they married into were not 100% Welsh either. They were Cambro-Norse. Welsh, who had coped with the impact of the Norse Gael diaspora of the Irish Sea by becoming part of it. They were part of this world of longships and raiding. And if you want proof of that, look no further than the adventures of the Dublin-born, half-Welsh, half-Norse-Irish Prince Gwafid ap Hinnan, who from 1075 until 1099 confounded and thwarted northern incursions into Wales, 
with the help of nine fleets facilitated from Dublin. And by extension, like it or not, the Normans of Pembroke and surrounding regions were similarly impacted by their proximity to the Fifth Nation. They of all the Norman lords understood that they could use it to their advantage. A generation or so earlier, Arnulf of Pembroke had fled to Ireland to escape a furious king of England. And even now, these current lords understood, almost alone of any of the Angevin lords of England, that true power lay in control over the sea. And it was here that Dermot was able to find subjects of King Henry II who would aid him. What he found were a motley bunch. One of them was called Robert Fitzstevens, a Cambro Norman who had been part of Henry II's campaigns in North Wales, and had actually been on the losing side fighting the Irish fleet in Anglesey, which I mentioned a while ago, and had been captured by the North Welsh the year before. Dermot was influential enough to have him released to help lead mercenary forces to reclaim his homeland, using his links with the Cambro Gales in North Wales to effect his release, but only at the second time of asking, and only after Robert promised that if released, he would piss off to Ireland. Then there was Robert's younger half-brother, Robert Fitzgerald, and there was also a guy called Maurice de Prendergast, who was a mercenary who had experience fighting in Ireland, and had once actually been hired to oppose Dermot. And above all, there was a man called Richard de Clare. Now, de Clare should have been the Earl of Pembroke, and certainly inherited the estates of his father, but because he had opposed the cause of Queen Matilda and had remained loyal to King Stephen, it appeared as if Henry II had refused to grant him the title of Earl of Pembroke. So while he was a noble, his chance of rising in Henry II's court circles was limited as, well, as you know from the Beckett example, Henry II was a man who could hold grudges. Declare, therefore, was someone looking for a chance to advance in life. Dermot gave him this chance. By all accounts, king in exile, Dermot hired Declare and his ragtag team to bring their men over to Ireland and fight for him. Which now begs the question... How the hell did he hire them? I mean, they're mercenaries, right? They need payment. Only Dermot didn't have any cash. He was an exiled petty king of a rather poor kingdom. He could not hire these men with money, a fact proven by later events. And I've said always in history, follow the money. So if there isn't any, it begs the question, with what could Dermot pay Declare and his fellow Cambro Normans with? Well, the one asset he did have land or a claim to land. He could give these Normans lands back in Ireland. Of course, that would depend on him winning, but he had land to give them. Now, the traditional excuse is that he offered the Normans control over his kingdom in the event of his death, but in actuality, he didn't. And the Normans didn't want Leinster as they knew they didn't have enough men to control it. They knew the only way they could control territory in a hostile land to them and given that Pembroke was territory surrounded by hostile natives, in this subject, they knew what they were talking about. The only way they could have any control was to control the ports. See, that was Pembroke's secret source. Why the castle there never fell to the Welsh. These Cambro Normans had by hook or by crook understood the truth the Vikings understood centuries ago and the Norse Gales understood right now that if you control the sea, then you had real power. So what Declare and his boys were after were two bits of real estate, the ports of Waterford and Wexford. These were the true gems in the crown of this proposed conquest. Understand, as Cambro Normans from Pembroke, these men would have easily understood the value of such property. If they could monopolise trade between Waterford and Wexford and, say, Milford Haven, they could cut out the growing power of the merchants of Bristol. They could have cornered trade in the Southern Irish Sea. This was a profitable little operation here. Now, promises were not going to work on this one. Declare wanted something a bit more concrete, and so it was agreed. If de Clare could organise the forces to reclaim his homelands, Dermot would give him his daughter's hand in marriage in order to make him his son-in-law and therefore legitimate heir to Waterford and Wexford. It was a good deal. 
Still, it took a while to happen. During such time, they could get Robert Fitzstevens out of jail and declare could raise the actual money required to pay for his troops because they needed cash, not land, to do such dirty work. And so it was on the 23rd of August, 1170, four years after Dermot had begun his exile, that de Clare set sail to conquer the lands for him. Only he actually didn't set sail. He sent his boys out first. Fitzgerald, Fitzstevens and Prendergast sailed in the first wave of attacks. And here we see the little detail that most historians miss out. Everyone just assumes that carrying soldiers across a big sea like the Irish Sea was easy and that because King Henry II would cross the channel so often that everyone around here had a nice working navy. Only they didn't. The only folks who had navies were the Norse Gales. You want proof of that? The first wave that went over to Ireland were roughly about 500 Norman mercenaries in that force on foot. It was a tiny force. It was supplemented by about an equal number of men who were loyal to Dermot. This was all they could carry. They needed reinforcements and fast. This was just the spearhead. And that's what de Clare had to organize, a, a force of about a thousand men to reinforce them. But this whole operation was being done on a shoestring budget. And you get a measure of how shoestring the budget is when you consider that de Clare was delayed in bringing his men over because he simply needed to raise cash. And he did. A couple of chapters ago, I mentioned the money pit of London and the rise of the Jewish community um, who were facilitating minor lords in growing their holdings. One of the names I mentioned was a man called Jocelyn, and he ended up lending Declare 100 shillings to pay for the men and ships. And finally, Declare was able to ferry his 1,000 men across to Ireland, and between them, they took Waterford and Wexford. Job done, right? Well, no. Partly because the deal is a deal, so Declare married Dermot's daughter at this stage. And then the rest was driven by tactical considerations before this group. One, Dermot was back, but he needed to secure himself. And secondly, while they controlled two ports, the Irish coast had three Norscale ports at this time, Waterford, Wexford and Dublin. And control of Dublin was crucial. So Dermot and the mercenaries needed to take Dublin and so marched on it. Now the standard approach would have been to march up the coast from Waterford to Dublin, supplemented by ships from the sea who sailed alongside your infantry force. That's what you did with the fleet. This was the hard lesson Henry II had learned campaigning in Wales. Sea power dominated land power. Only it is clear that while they had taken the ports and while they had ships to ferry them across there, the mercenaries didn't have any access to ships now, lending weight to the idea that had only hired them. As such, when High King Rory O'Connor heard of the return of his rival from across the sea, he took himself and an army and placed himself on the coast, waiting for the Normans and Dermot to march straight to him. But the enemy force actually took an inland route to find their way to Dublin, bypassing the Irish army left to meet them, and fell upon Dublin without much warning. And here something really interesting and really important happens. The Dubliners at the time were Norse Gaels. They were loyal to King Rory O'Connor because he allowed them choose their own leader. And the leader at the time was a man called Askel. Now, Askel was in charge and he wasn't expecting this initial attack, but de Clare and co had bypassed the Irish forces by coming at Dublin from the Wicklow Mountains. So they were able to storm the place. But because they'd come by land, they didn't have any ships. And that meant Askel may have lost control of the town of Dublin, but he was able to retreat and retain the most important part of the town, its fleet. Now, Irish sources says Askell and his fleet fled to the islands, and many modern historians take that to mean the Dubliners fled to the Hebrides or even the Orkneys. But it was a Professor Duffy at the University of Dublin who first pointed out that their most probable destination was the Isle of Man, which was the de facto capital of the Kingdom of the Islands. And in this, we bring to the first of our final crucial characters in this story, a man called Godred Olofsson. Godred was arguably the last true Viking warlord of this era. He was the man who lost his kingdom twice already and regained it twice. He'd been up to his eyeballs in the politics of the Norse diaspora, which means you saw him involved in both Irish and Scottish politics, 
and he was known and welcome in the courts of Henry II and the kings of Scotland and the kings of Norway. And in fact, in Norway, he was a kingmaker. But Godfred Olofsson was a man who ruled just a fractious and unstable polity right in the middle of a fractious and unstable region. And he had one claim to fame right now. He had a large fleet and he could give shelter to the fleet of Dublin under Askow, which he did. Meanwhile, King Rory O'Connor, the designated High King of Ireland, and please do not see the High King of Ireland at this time as like a European-style king like Henry II. The High Kings of Ireland had more in common with the Bretwilders of early Saxon England. But anyway, Rory O'Connor came up with a plan to deal with Dermot and the English mercenaries. He gathered together a huge force, and intended to besiege them in Dublin. This small sudden war, which had happened quickly and without warning, he was simply gonna crush. And this is where the last crucial figure in this invasion story comes into its tale. A man known to us today as Saint Lawrence O'Toole. That is the anglicized version of his name. But back then, well, Lawrence was the wily and mercurial Archbishop of Dublin. He's a really significant figure in the story that follows it. You may have noticed something about his title. As I've said previously in the story of London, the position of Bishop of Dublin had been created under the auspices of Canute, overlord of the great and terrible Scandinavian Empire that included England and the Norse Gales of the Irish Sea. And you may remember I mentioned that the first few bishops of Dublin had been run out of Canterbury. Well, in 1121, Bishop Gregory of Dublin had been ordained in Lambeth by the then Archbishop of Canterbury and sent to run the Diocese of Dublin. But 30 years later, Pope Eugene III, the guy who called the Second Crusade I mentioned a few chapters ago, sent an Italian Cardinal, Giovanni Paparoni, to Ireland to reform the structure of the Irish Church. And he did this at an event called the Synod of Kells. Now, without getting into some really complicated details, the Synod of Kells was one of those moments where the modernizers of Ireland sought to bring the nation more in line with the rest of Europe and was overseen by the modernizing High King, uh, Turlo Moore O'Connor. The direct result was that Dublin became elevated from having a bishop to having an archbishop and now came under Irish church jurisdiction. Bishop Gregory had been appointed the first archbishop, but when he died, he was replaced by the first Irishman to hold the post, Lawrence O'Toole. Of course, there's a bit more to this. I mean, his actual Gaelic name was Lorcan, and he was born the fourth and youngest son of King Murkatak. He was a prince, and this prince had become a monk, ridden to the post of abbot, and then aged 32, he'd been elevated to the position of the Archbishop of Dublin. And in doing so, he'd gained the support of both King Rory O'Connor and King Dermot. But by that point, by the way, King Dermot had married Lorcan's sister Moore. So here is this Irish Archbishop, a modernizer and reformer, at least in church circles. He's the Archbishop of Dublin. He's trusted by High King Rory and related by marriage to King Dermot. And he was crucially placed to be the the negotiator for everything that was going on between all the factions. So Rory besieged Dermot in Dublin and the talks began, led by Archbishop Lawrence, and then Dermot died. This threw a spar in the works for everyone, especially Richard de Clare. De Clare's entire involvement in this entire project was based upon him having Dermot back his claim to own Waterford and Wexford when the fighting stopped. Now he no longer had him. He's just a foreigner surrounded by hostile people far from home and in trouble. Declare wanted to keep what he'd earned so far, and so made the most desperate play he could possibly have done. He said that being the son-in-law of the man who was once upon a time High King made him a claimant to the title of High King. It was outrageous. It wasn't serious. It was a negotiating tactic designed to play for time and concessions. King Rory, however, began his siege and his tactics were simple. Place an army around Dublin and place the fleet of Dublin in the Dublin Bay to prevent ships getting in and out and squeeze. And this is where he needed Ascal, the Norse-scale lord of Dublin, who was over in the Isle of Man, and he came home and besieged the town. 
Only Askell clearly didn't get the memo, as he launched a preemptive attack upon Dublin, landing his men and charging the walls and, well, getting himself killed and the fleet either captured or more likely destroyed. And suddenly King Rory had a big issue. He needed to blockade those bloody Normans. So at this point, either directed by King Rory or acting on behalf of King Rory, Archbishop Lawrence O'Toole got in contact with Godfred Olofsson, the King of the Isle of Man, and made him an offer. Please come blockade Dublin for us. And Godfred, he does. His fleet of Norse Gale ships settle into Dublin Bay and blockades the city for King Rory of Ireland. Ta-da! Rory holds all the cards. But then... Declare and his boys stage a breakout and break the siege and Rory can't maintain the army and so we're left with a no-one's-winning situation. Declare was still mostly stuck with small forces in Dublin or the region around it. He just wants Waterford and Wexford and sure he'd like to keep Dublin but everyone hates him and they'd just lost Wexford. And Rory, he just wants his bloody Welsh mercenaries gone and, and their leader to concede he isn't bloody claiming the title of High King. And at this point, someone, someone asked Henry to intervene. Because as now he accepts the invitation and he organises himself. Travels to the Normandy coast, then crosses to Southampton, then travels up to Wales, raising an army on the way. Someone asked Henry to come and Henry was seeking a way to cool things after Beckett's murder, leaps at the chance. And yes, he was curious about Ireland. That whole claim he had long coveted Ireland is, is that a nonsense, really. First, the claim he wanted to take it and hand it to his brother. That's unusual. Henry of Anjon had never wanted to do anything for his brothers previous and never did anything major for his brothers afterwards. So why did he, all those decades ago, ask the one Englishman to ever become Pope, Nicholas Breakspear, to give him a ruling that he could invade Ireland? Well, if you look at the accounts, as I covered at the beginning of the last chapter, it could be that he didn't ask for this. Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury asked for this. Remember when Henry II sent a man to go see the English Pope about this issue, there was already an English priest there called John of Salisbury, who was an old mandem of Nicholas Breakspear. John was already in place when Henry's ambassador showed up. What if all those years ago, Henry II had sent an ambassador to the Pope to discuss the matter of the invasion of Ireland, because it was already being raised by the Archbishop of Canterbury? And why would Theobald raise such an issue? Because he was the first Archbishop of Canterbury in a long time who no longer had any say over the church in Ireland, perhaps? Could be. Because, as I covered last chapter, the deal Nicholas Breakspear gave Henry II, he said basically, I, the Pope, do hereby authorise you, new King of England, permission to go and invade Ireland in my name and place me in charge and run it via me and my chosen representative, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and you'll be my vassal. Would it be any surprise that Henry utterly ignored the offer? And would we then be surprised if the apologists for the kings had tried to style it out later by saying, well, the king was only looking at it as it was, you know, something to give his baby brother. Yeah, that, that was why, yes. And his mum convinced him not to do it. She was a wise old bird, his mother. That makes a bit more sense to me. But many historians would disagree. And all of this misses the bleeding obvious issue Henry II had. He wasn't just going to Ireland by himself. He was going to bring a big army. And we know he had a big army because the moment he crosses into Wales, you can see everyone's jaws drop and basically the entire region goes, oh, Jesus Christ, it's the king with a shed load of soldiers. And how do we know that? Because on his way to Pembroke, Henry has a bunch of North Welsh princes and potentates travel down to meet him and arrange peace treaties with him and offer hostages and get hostages returned. And when he gets to Pembroke, the lords there, they just crap themselves and bend the knee. But Henry is stuck in Pembroke from August to October 1172 because he didn't have any ships to take a force that big. There are reports of contacts between Declare, who is losing at this point, and have broken out of Dublin, and the forces of Wexford have been defeated, and Fitzstephen's have been held hostage by the Norse Gales, and Henry. But he still had to overcome this logistical problem. 
I mean, the largest force who'd sailed from Wales across the Irish Sea had been Declare's force of about 1,000 men, right? Henry was bringing 4,000 men at arms, hundreds of knights and their horses, and even siege towers in case there was a siege. How the hell do you get a force that big over the Irish Sea? Well, you needed a fleet. And remember who I said had the biggest fleet on the Irish Sea? Godfred Olofsson, the Norse-scale lord of the Isle of Man, who had just recently taken up employment from the Archbishop of Dublin. And guess what? That's who carried Henry from Milford Haven to Waterford. Godfred Olofsson. Which begs the question, how did that happen? Did Henry send men to contact the Norsegale commander and hire his ships? Well, we know from the pipe rolls, Henry did pay a lot of money for ships across the Irish Sea during this period. But none of these amounts was more expenditure than he spent that year on his daughter's dresses alone, and did not explain away how he afforded Godfred Olofsson's fleet. So maybe he didn't pay for it. Maybe Godfred Olofsson suddenly decided to just do this out of the kindness of his heart. A man who had never done the like before, hmm? Or maybe the Archbishop of Dublin, who had recently paid for the Norse Gale to serve him, simply asked Godfred to ferry the English king across the waters. As I said, somebody asked Henry to turn up. But this leads to my favourite moment in medieval history. The image in my head I can never get rid of. The great Plantagenet king, Henry II, leading his forces across the waters to Dublin at the head of a fleet of Viking longships. Henry landed and basically used shock and awe to intimidate everyone, mercenaries, locals, Norse Gales, and then he spent months in Ireland. Used that old offer from the Pope to formally reorganise the church, and in reality it was just him getting men to bend the knee to him. It's worth noting that Henry had learnt a lesson by the time he got to Ireland. He'd had years trying to subjugate Wales and failing. He'd learned the hard way in Wales that if you place an entire feudal obligation system upon a non-feudal society, they're going to rebel. So he turned up and he didn't do that, but Henry didn't have a plan. And you see proof of this in something called the Council of Oxford, a treaty with Welsh nations signed in 1177. Although there is no text of the treaty with the Welsh, the terms as described by the chroniclers are very similar to the terms of the Treaty of Windsor, which was concluded two years previously between Henry and Rory O'Connor. A couple of local kings are recognised as overlords of the regions, and they alone swore homage and promised to keep the peace with the King of England, while lesser rulers were recognised as subject to them by the king. But the Irish arrangement was a failure. Henry's recognition of Rory O'Connor as High King presumed a little too much political maturity in Ireland. The King of Connacht proved incapable of maintaining control over the lesser rulers, which the Welsh kings could do. It's a messy story, but Henry didn't want to be bothered with running Ireland, to be blunt. One historian summed it up best when he said the following, quote, Henry had begun, when King Dermot came to him in 1167, by thinking of Ireland in terms of how he dealt with Scotland. He had changed, when de Clare forced his hand, to thinking it in terms of how he dealt with Wales. And then he moved finally, when Rory O'Connor failed to run Ireland as he thought he would, to frame his policy as an analogy with Brittany. His solution to the problem of pacifying Brittany had been to hand it over to his son Geoffrey and create for him the nucleus of a ducal administration. And it, if Henry had solved Brittany by making it a duchy and handing it to his son Geoffrey, he sought to do the same to Ireland by handing it eventually to his youngest son John. Like Brittany, Ireland presented the sort of problem that could not be adequately dealt with by a king who had more pressing cares that took him to distant places. He needed a man on the spot, a man who had a personal stake in the country's future. Unfortunately, Prince John was, in 1177, only nine years old. The proposal had to be shelved. It was drawn out again in 1185 when John was 17. At that age, Henry himself had been striving to gain the Kingdom of England and had been knighted by David, the King of Scotland. So, in March 1185, Henry knighted John and sent him over with an army and a whole bunch of experienced administrators and told him, go prove yourself, my son. It was a mistake. John completely misjudged the situation and his need. He was young, impatient, 
didn't like advice and prone to pride. His first taste of power went to his head. He messed up the entire thing. His army was mishandled. The mercenaries deserted. And after nine months, John retreated back to England, blaming his failure on everybody but himself. And from that, things in Ireland only went downhill. Henry's involvement in Ireland had come about due to several remarkable circumstances. If the Archbishop of Dublin had not been so keen to bring European-style reforms to the Irish Church, would he have, as I believe, asked Henry to come over? The Treaty of Windsor strengthens the hands of men like the Archbishop of Dublin. He was ideally placed to have sent the invitation. I have no proof, no smoking gun, but it really does seem as if he, for his own reasons, had happily asked the English king to come intervene. Um, but then what if de Clare had decided he didn't want to hold on to Dublin, had taken Rory's earlier offer and just kept Waterford and Wexford? Would it have been a case that this Earl of Pembroke would have given up that to become the Lord of the Southern Irish Sea? And above all, what would have happened if Godfred Olufsen had not offered his fleet or allowed his fleet to carry Henry. Because ultimately, if that Norse Gale warlord had not given Henry II use of his ships, Henry II could never have sailed to Ireland. This, I feel, is the greatest and longest lasting legacy of the Fifth Nation. It is only by their hand that the English arrived in Ireland. But that's how it started. And here in the reign of Henry II, we have a start. The Normans were in Ireland, and this began a story that would eventually lead to Irish coming to London. And this began their tale, the tale of the London Irish. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>